right, well, good morning again, new breed. Sorry about any technical difficulties that you may have experienced uh, there, but hopefully you can hear me now, and it's good to be with you again to open God's Word and, and to hear from Him. And so I want to I wanna draw our attention this morning to Daniel chapter 6. It's a story that's fairly familiar to most of us. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, and before we, we read it, and I do want to read the, the chapter this morning, let me, let me give you a little bit of info just kind of on, on where we are. So we learn there in the very first verse of chapter 6 that Darius is king. So Darius is the king now. Now, you might remember at the end of chapter 5 that Belshazzar died and the kingdom came to an end. And so so Darius is king and his kingdom has been established for a a little while. And a a side note here, and we'll come back to it uh, briefly this morning, uh, but we'll hit it again in some of the weeks to come. But, But history does not record any king between Belshazzar and Cyrus. And that's not, that's, that's, history in general in general and so some people have questioned uh, the validity of this text by saying well there's this king Darius and he's nowhere in history what do we make of that and most scholars and and I'm not going to get too too much into the arguments this morning for but most scholars and I would agree believe that king Darius and king Cyrus are the same person uh, that an identity in terms of name change took place, but that Darius and Cyrus are the same people. But, but at this point in Daniel chapter 6, I want you to note that Daniel at this point in his life is in his 80s. So he is up there in age, and a long time has passed, though we've just gone a few chapters, a long time has passed since uh, this boy was brought into the the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel, as this is going on, is in his, his 80s. And so I want, I want to read this chapter of Scripture to you, Daniel chapter 6. And beginning in verse 1, we, we read this. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administers, or administrators, excuse me, including Daniel. And these satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against Daniel, unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, may King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as the law of the Medes and Persians... It is irrevocable and cannot be changed. 
So King Darius signed the written edict. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any person who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, as a law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles, has ignored you, the king, and the edict you sign, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went together to the king and said to him, You know, your majesty, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they haven't harmed me. For I was found innocent before him and also before you, your majesty. I have not done harm. The king was overjoyed overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed. For he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command that these men who had maliciously accused Daniel were that that they were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives, they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, may your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. You know, this morning, 
as we continue on in our series through the book of Daniel entitled Dominion, Faith, and Worship, I want us to consider this morning the idea of bowing when the world stands. Bowing when the world stands. Stands. Now, if you remember back a few weeks ago, you may recall that when we examined Daniel chapter 3 and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how King Nebuchadnezzar sat up, how he set up a statue for all the people to worship. And he, he gave this command that when the instruments play, everyone who is in the presence of the statue must bow down in reverence and worship. And he said that anyone who refused would be thrown into the fire. And we we know how the story goes. So the the music played, the sounds rang out, and people from all over, from different tribes and nations and tongues who were present, bowed down in worship to this statue. Except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, being a man of his word, did what he said he would do. And he heated the fire seven times what it normally was. And he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. And while they were in there, something amazing, something miraculous, something supernatural occurred that where three men went in, four now stood. And they weren't burned. Their clothes weren't singed. They didn't even smell like smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar declared, come out of the fire. And they walked out. And, and as we considered this picture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we thought through this idea of standing when the world bows. Being bold to refuse to bend our knees to the things of this world. Being bold to refuse to worship anything other than God. And the thrust behind that message was was somewhat the reality that Paul communicates in Romans 12.2. To not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the reason that we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, the reason we stand when the world bows is because we are called to only bow to one. But before Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 1, not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, he says in Romans or before he, he says that in Romans 12, 2, he says this in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And so in essence, we could say that Paul is arguing that not only do we stand when the world bows, but on the other side of the same coin, we bow when the world stands. We worship God and God alone. And everything we do should be to honor our great God. And so when the world refuses to bow, when it refuses to give praise and adoration and worship that is rightly due God to God, we bow when the world stands. Now we have to remember something. We have to remember, church, that humanity is built to worship. And every human being worships God. Something. The late author David 
Foster Wallace, who wrestled throughout his life up until his death with, with religion and, and, and beliefs and, and trying to make sense of this world, he, he wrote something before he died, very significant. And he wrote this, he said, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And I think there's such truth in that quote because every day as we live our lives, as every human being lives their life, they are worshiping something. And we as Christians must fight to make sure we are worshiping God and God alone. And that is the core, church, of who we are meant to be. See, we often think that the core of Christianity is defined by what we do. But in actuality, the core of Christianity is defined by what we worship. A.W. Tozer once wrote that God wants worshipers before workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the lost art of worship. You see, worshiping God is not merely an action that is performed on Sunday mornings. Worship should encompass every aspect of our life. Worshiping God should define who we are as people. But to worship God, it means that we will have to bow in reverence and worship even when the world stands. And what we learn in Daniel 6 are are some principles that help us understand how to bow when the world stands. So this morning, I want to offer you five principles, or you could even say five lessons that we learn from Daniel chapter 6 regarding this idea of bowing when the world stands. Here's the first principle I have for you this morning. First principle is this, integrity reflects worship. Integrity reflects worship. And I hope you notice as we were reading Daniel chapter 6 that Daniel was a man of integrity. Look again at verses 3 and 4. It says, Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. Now specifically, listen to verse 4. It says, the administrators and satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. They kept trying to trap Daniel. It says, but they could find no charge or corruption. Listen to this. For he was trustworthy. And no negligence or corruption was found in him. Daniel was a man of integrity. And what this means is that his life in totality was lived, dedicated to, and worshiping the Lord. And I want to tell you this morning, church, that integrity matters. Integrity matters in the life of a believer. Because integrity shows somewhat of what we already mentioned, that our worship is not relegated to public action alone, but that our worship is the pattern of our lives. Because when we genuinely worship God, it will change us. So much so that we begin to be like the one 
that we are worshiping. See, Daniel's life reflected the God he loved and worshiped, and no one had to ask Daniel what he worshiped. Notice that. That's very interesting. No one had to ask Daniel what he worshiped because they saw it lived out in his life of integrity. His actions matched his words. In church, we have to be people of integrity. We have to be people where what we say in public, what we do on Sunday morning, matches those moments in our life when we are by ourselves and no one is watching. Where we will still bow in reverence when no one is observing us. It's not, it's not a front. It's not, it's not faked. It is the pattern of our lives. We are people marked by integrity. And again, integrity matters. We see this very thing in Psalm chapter 15. In Psalm chapter 15, the psalmist writes, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? And then the question is answered. The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friends or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken. So who can dwell with God? The one who is blameless and practices righteousness. Integrity. And notice what it says about Daniel, but they could find no charge of or corruption. For he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Daniel was a man of integrity and this integrity showed that Daniel was a genuine worshiper of God. And for us, we know and we believe that integrity comes when we have eyes fixed on Jesus and we worship him for who he is and for what he has done. And when we are genuinely worshiping God, it will change us. But I want to mention this as well, kind of the opposite side of this. A lack of integrity in our lives reflects the actual status of our worship. So, so track with me here. If, if worship produces integrity, and integrity means we keep our word, but we don't. If integrity means that we are generous, but we are not. If integrity means we care for the innocent and the marginalized and the needy, and we don't take advantage, but we do not do these things, perhaps we are not worshiping as we think we are. Or perhaps we are not worshiping what we think we are. And I want to note that if you find yourself lacking integrity, if you look at your life and you see that, man, what I do in private doesn't really match what I look like on Sundays. It doesn't match what it looks like when I'm around other believers. That when I'm alone, when I'm by myself, when I'm out with my other friends, it doesn't really match. The solution is not to try to muster up integrity on your own because you cannot do it. No, the solution is to remind yourself of the truth of the gospel, of how amazing God is, of what he has done for you. Just stand in awe afresh and anew of your God and to genuinely worship him, not just in a moment, but as the pattern of your life and watch as this genuine worship begins to shape you to look more like the God you worship and you will watch integrity begin to grow in your life. But integrity reflects Worship. 
And we have to be faithful to worship. But I want to caution you. I want to caution you. Faithfulness brings with it challenges. When we are faithful to bow when the world stands, it will produce hardship. And this leads to the second principle that I have for you this morning. Faithfulness puts a target on your back. Faithfulness puts a target on your back. Look at verses 4 and 5. The administrators and satraps therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But, no, but they could find no charge or corruption for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. It's evident that Daniel has a target on his back. Because it was not like these leaders were looking at him and seeing a lack of integrity and seeing shortfalls and and shortcomings or seeing corruption. They were looking at a man who was innocent and marked by integrity, but yet they wanted to see him fall. He had a target on his back. And when we bow, when the world stands, we will find ourselves in the minority. We will find ourselves in the midst of a battle. As we have mentioned before, even as we've been examining other parts of the book of Daniel, it's not ultimately a battle between us and other people. It is a battle between us and the very powers of hell. Again, Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. But make no mistake about it. Satan uses people that are slaves to him, which is anyone who is not in Christ, as instruments through which this struggle occurs. And when we are faithful, like Daniel, we will find a target on our back. And church, we know this to be true. Because there are aspects of our faith that stand in stark contrast to the values and principles of this world. When we are faithful to bow in reverence and worship, declaring that we will serve God alone, we trust God alone, and we believe in His word and His plan, we will find ourselves in direct opposition with the world. We see this today, even now. We see this in our day and age, in our current Society, when it comes to issues surrounding the LGBTQ movement. You know, in June of 2015, the United States Supreme Court decided that they had the right to define or to redefine the institution of marriage. Something that was not created by them nor established by them, but by God. But they believed that they could redefine it in such a way that marriage was legal for homosexual couples. And I just want you to know, church, that in 2015, just like Daniel and Daniel 6, we found ourselves on the other side of an edict. We found ourselves on the other side of a law. And in that moment, again, faithful Christians who bowed to the authority and the word of God were put on the opposite side of the law. And even more, the social pressure to bend for many has seemed somewhat insurmountable. 
We know that in our day and age to say that a homosexual lifestyle and that homosexual marriage is sin is to be labeled a bigot, intolerant, hateful, unsafe, and harmful. Now, I want to be clear about something. And, and, and if someone is listening that, that disagrees with me, they might not believe me when I say this. But I want to be clear that I love and value and, and see the worth and dignity of homosexual individuals, homosexual individuals. And you have to as well if you are going to be faithful. I believe that homosexual individuals, I believe those that are in homosexual marriages possess dignity and, re- and worth and respect like any other human being who is made in the image of God. I don't believe they should lose their jobs. I don't think they should be fired. I, I don't think they should be necessarily discriminated against. And we as Christians have to make sure we're not actually being hateful. But, but where, where it gets difficult is that this world does not understand that I can love them and not agree with them. That I can love them and still call sin, sin. Because God has spoken clearly and succinctly about this issue in his word. This isn't even one we have to speculate what God thinks about. It is clear in scripture. And so yes, we will love them and we will care for them. But we, we do not believe that, that, that marriage includes homosexual individuals. Because the Bible does not allow it. We do not believe that God approves of a homosexual lifestyle. We believe that God calls it sin. There is a target on our back and one that has sadly led many to cave under the pressure to remain silent when we should speak, to remain silent when we should declare that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But we have to understand that if we are going to be faithful, if we are going to be genuine worshipers of God, that faithfulness will bring hardship. But I want you to be encouraged that when we experience that hardship, your faithfulness is being seen. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Daniel had a target on his back. But he cared more about bowing in worship than standing with the world. And to some degree they knew this about Daniel. So we read, beginning in verse 6, So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty established the edict and signed the document so that as a law of the, Me- of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed so king darius signed the written edict it wasn't about them wanting to honor king darius it wasn't about them believing that he was a great king it was about them trapping this one who was faithful to his god and we just have to be honest about the fact that faithfulness will not always lead to sunshine and roses in this life faithfulness puts a target on our back And we have to know what we stand for and who we bow to. But this leads to our third principle this morning, a very important principle. 
It's this, faithfulness must be established before it is tested. Faithfulness must be established before it is tested. Look at verse 10. And especially pay attention when we get to the last phrase of the verse. It says, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. It says, the windows in its upstairs room Open toward Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God. Now here it is, just as he had done before. You see, it was not the edict that caused Daniel to pray. It was not the fact that social pressure was mounting and he wanted to prove a point to the other leaders. Daniel had a pattern of bowing before the Lord. Daniel knew what faithfulness required before it was tested. Daniel was doing what Daniel always did, bowing before the Lord. And oh, church, how we need to be reminded of this. If you are not faithful in the calm seasons, if you are not rooted in truth and worship, you will not be faithful when the storms come. Faithfulness must be established before it is tested or else faithfulness will evaporate under the heat of this world. Even as I, even as I say that, I'm reminded of, of, of Jesus' parable of the sower. Do you remember that? When, when he talks about the seeds that fall on the rocky ground, seed that, that initially sprouted but died quickly. And Jesus, he says, he reminds us that, and the one that's sown on rocky ground, this is the one who, who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but, but he has no root and it's short-lived. And when distress or persecution comes because of the world, immediately he falls away. And sadly, church, we see this so often in the church. That faithfulness does not take root. Bowing in worship as a pattern of life, right? That it's, 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 it's not merely an action. It doesn't take root. And when the scorching sun of hardships and persecution inevitably comes, people will stand when they should be bowing. All because faithfulness was not established before it was tested. But Daniel's life was a pattern of faithfulness. Not merely moments of it here and there. Not simply when the people of God gathered on Sundays. It was an all-consuming work. Charles Spurgeon speaks of the need for all-consuming faith and faithfulness when he says this, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt of the sword or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. You see, church, we must be pursuing faithfulness with all that we have, and especially in seasons of calm and rest, so that when the storms come, when the sword comes, when the persecution and the trial and the hardship comes, by God's grace, we will not break. 
But in order to grow in faithfulness, in order to bow when the world stands, there are two very significant truths that we have to believe. And these are the fourth and fifth principles in our sermon this morning. But these are two significant truths that we have to believe if we are going to bow when the world stands. Here's the fourth principle. God will deliver. God will deliver. So we know that the edict was passed. It was signed by King Darius. And so the men go and they see Daniel praying in his window and they seek to trap him. And so they go back to the king and they basically, they play the king. They say, hey, didn't you sign this edict? And isn't it, isn't it the case that, that edicts that are signed into law, they cannot be reversed in this kingdom? And the king, knowing the law, says, yes, you're absolutely right. And they say, well, there's someone who violated your edict. So Darius says, who was it? Who is this person? And they said, it was, it's Daniel. Daniel violated your edict. And it says that King Darius was displeased, but that's an interesting phrase because he wasn't displeased with Daniel. The text doesn't give us that indication. He was displeased with the law. He was displeased with what he was about to have to do, but he knew he had to do it. So Darius goes to Daniel and, 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 and he says, listen, Daniel, if your God is able to rescue you, I hope that he does. I hope that he does. And so Daniel is put into the lion's den. A giant stone is rolled in front of the den. And there Daniel stays all night. And Darius has, in some estimations, an even rougher night than Daniel. As nothing can divert his attention from away, he actually fasts, prays, longing to see Daniel make it through this ordeal. And so... We read there, picking up at verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he reached the den, he cried out in anguish, Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God whom you, notice this, continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? If I was Daniel, I would have paused for effect. It says, then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths. And they haven't harmed me, for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I have not done harm. And what we see in our text is the amazing reality of the fact that God will deliver his faithful servants. And Daniel believed this. I mean, we've already seen that in the book of, of Daniel thus far, that Daniel had an unwavering belief that God could do anything, but he didn't have to do what Daniel wanted. But Daniel believed that God would deliver him, and if it wasn't from the lion's den, then he would have deliverance in the life to come. Even if God did not provide physical deliverance, there would have been deliverance in the life to come. And this fact undergirded Daniel's desire and ability to bow in reverence when the world stood because Daniel knew that no matter what happened, he would be delivered at the hands of a faithful God. 
And I don't want to overlook, though, the actual deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den because in this deliverance, we are reminded of two significant truths about God. First, God is sovereign over his creation. He has complete and total dominion. Daniel says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they haven't harmed me. And this truth screams to us that our God is in control. That even in the pit with lions who are hungry all around, God is still in control. And church, it's in that reality that we have to take comfort. It reminds us that our God is never caught off guard. God is never absent from what we face in this life. That God has complete control over even the moments of our life that seem like complete chaos to us. God is still sovereign. We are reminded of this even in Isaiah 45 verses 6 and 7 as the Lord speaks and he says, I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you though you do not know me so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord. Listen to this. And there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and I create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Our God has complete dominion over everything. And for us as believers, it is in that truth that we have hope. Because even when it seems like the bottom is falling out, even when it seems like we don't know what God is doing and we can't make sense of what is happening, even when it seems like the world is crashing down around us, we rest in the truth that our God is a God who makes success and creates disasters, that he does all things, that our God is sovereign. And we see this. We are reminded of this as God shuts the mouths of lions so that Daniel will live. But not only are we reminded that God is sovereign over his creation, but we are reminded in, in this deliverance from the lion's den that God is fighting for his faithful servants. What a truth that God is fighting for his faithful servants. See, in this moment, in the lion's den, if God does not fight for Daniel, Daniel's life is over. But we see God delivering his faithful servant in a way that only God can. And church, I want to remind you that whatever you're going through in your life, whatever hardship, if you are in Christ Jesus, that God is fighting for you at this moment and I know that to be true you might ask well how do you know that to be true Michael great question Romans eight twenty six tells us in the same way the spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings the God is fighting for you even when you don't know what to pray, even when you don't know what to say, the Spirit of God that dwells in you is 
fighting for you. And then just a few verses later in Romans 8, in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, and he also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. That at this very moment, church, try to imagine this with me. At this very moment, wherever you are, as you are sitting or standing or walking or whatever you're doing, as you are listening to this, at this moment, the King of Eternity is interceding for you in the throne room of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that at this very moment, the Spirit and Son are fighting for you? They are praying for you. They are interceding for you. God is fighting for you. And we see this truth in Daniel as God fights for his faithful servant. And we see that God will deliver. And Daniel believed that God would deliver. But what's even, more, what's even more amazing is that there's more going on in this story than we may realize. You see, we have to remember, and it's something I've shared with you before, and it's a helpful principle as you look at the Old Testament. It doesn't work all the time, but it works most of the time. We have to remember that often we have to see people and events in the Old Testament as a physical picture of our spiritual reality. That, that Israel and the nation of God, the people of God, they are a physical picture of our spiritual reality. And so with that in mind, we are reminded that this physical picture of one being placed in the pit of death with a stone rolled over him is painting a picture of a better deliverance. It's painting a picture of Jesus because Daniel is not the only person to be sentenced to death at the hands of men trying to trap him. He is not the only one to go silently to the slaughter. He is not the only one to be placed in a tomb with a stone rolled over him. And he is not the only one where we see life snatched or death snatched out of the hands of life. Daniel is painting a picture for us of the greater work that Jesus will do. When Jesus comes, a man of complete and total integrity, a man of pure righteousness, not righteousness that is given to him, it is his righteousness. He is righteous and perfect and without sin. And Jesus comes into this world as the righteous, perfect Savior, and he lives as we should have lived. But, but we can't do it because we are not righteous and we are not perfect and we fail in integrity. And Jesus was righteous and perfect and filled with integrity for us and he had a target on his back because he was faithful to God the Father. And Jesus was taken before a court. They said he broke the law by claiming to be God, which he was God. And they crucified him. They nailed him to a tree. He died on a cross. And he too was placed in a pit and a stone was rolled over him. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And because of Jesus' work on the cross, we have 
tangible evidence that God will deliver because through the finished work of Jesus, we have deliverance from our sin. That God in flesh paid the price for our sins. That though we rebelled against God, though we deserve hell, every one of us, we deserve judgment. Jesus came and paid the penalty for our sins and was raised from the dead and we can come to him in faith and repentance and find salvation. Jesus testifies to us that God will deliver and Daniel is a weak example of what Jesus would be. But it is still a declaration that God will deliver. Scripture has been declaring that to us since the beginning. The gospel is an ever-present truth. That God will deliver, and even more, that God alone is worthy of our worship, and to Him and Him alone do we bow. There's a final truth that I want to mention, a final truth that we have to hold on to. It is not as significant as the gospel, but it is a truth worth mentioning. So here's our final principle this morning. Not only will God deliver, but we see in this story in Daniel 6 that God will use our faithfulness for His appointed end. God will use our faithfulness for His appointed end. You know, one of the things that is so fascinating to me about this text, and it's an idea that the Lord has really been stretching me with over these past few months, It's this idea that often God is using our stories, our lives, and what we go through as a means of primarily changing someone else. Let me try to explain that. Often, when Christians go through hardships, when they go through trials, when they go through struggles in this life, we automatically assume that God is trying to teach us something. Or we automatically assume that there is some deficiency in our life that the Lord is trying, that He's trying to sanctify in us. We automatically assume that it's about us. Now I want to say I think that that very much can be the case. I do believe that in every trial, God is working for our good. We see that in Scripture. James 1 tells us to consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So in in trials, God is developing perseverance in us. Peter reminds us that, that we don't need to be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us to test us, right? So that God will use trials to refine our faith. I'm not saying that God doesn't, where He is always working for good in the midst of hardships, but, but I don't think it all always has to be primarily about us. And I think Daniel 6 tells us that. Because when you look at this story, we see no indication that Daniel has some sort of revelation that he missed previously that being in that lion's den showed him. We don't see some hidden sin revealed in his life and overcome that that he would have missed had he not been in the lion's den. We honestly don't see much about Daniel anymore in this chapter. But what we see is how this trial changed the lives of those around him. First, take the ones who plotted against him. Oh, their lives were changed. In fact, their lives were ended as a result. I mean, look again beginning in verse 23. 
The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed, for he trusted in his God. Then, or I'm sorry, the king then gave the command, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives, they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions had overpowered them and crushed their bones. So this trial and persecution of Daniel was used by God to bring about the judgment of those who persecuted him. But it goes even beyond that. Second, consider King Darius. Look at how this, how this trial in the life of Daniel affected and changed Darius. Beginning in verse 25, we read, Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live on the whole earth, May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. Now notice this. For he is the living God. And he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He, for he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Everything that Darius says about, that is true about God, he learned through Daniel's trial. Not even his own trial, through Daniel's trial. He learned that God is the living God. He learned that he endures forever and that his kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He learned that God is a God who rescues and delivers and redeems, that he performs signs and wonders in the heavens. And all of this because Daniel went through a trial. Daniel's, <laughs> Daniel's persecution resulted in a pagan king praising the God of eternity. But we see something even more incredible in this truth that God will use our faithfulness for his appointed ends. Because we mentioned this at the beginning, and I want to come back to it, that most likely, again, most scholars agree that King Darius is King Cyrus who will be mentioned, who was mentioned in the last verse of our text and will be mentioned again in the book of Daniel. And if this is the case, then God was doing more than we realized with Daniel in that lion's den. He was doing more than Daniel would have ever imagined. God was using Daniel's faithfulness for his appointed end because we will read later in the book of Ezra that it was this king, it was King Cyrus who allowed the people of God to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And he also contributed his goods and his money and his people. Why would a pagan king let the people of God return and worship their God? Oh, because this pagan king had seen in the trial of Daniel that he is the living God. And he endures forever and his kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on the earth. God was using Daniel to shape the life of the king so that the eventual freedom of his people from slavery and captivity would be secured. And it happened through a king who witnessed the power of God in the suffering of one of God's servants. 
And all of this reminds us, church, of something that I say so frequently because we have to believe it. God will use our faithfulness for his appointed ends. And if faithfulness brings suffering and God is using it, then we have to believe. We have to believe that our suffering as a result of faithfulness, our persecution as a result of faithfulness, any struggle or trial that we experience as a result of faithfulness, it is never meaningless. Because God is doing something. And it might not be primarily about you. But we are a people who claim that we want the name and the renown of God to be known. And so if we are the instruments through which God makes himself known, praise God. We shouldn't be afraid of the truth that God might be working for someone else's good through our struggles. Praise God. That is what we say we want. But our suffering is never meaningless if it is in the name of Jesus. And God is doing abundantly more than we can see or imagine, even, especially, definitely in the hard stuff. We are privileged to be used by God for his glory. Our God is so faithful. And our God is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of us bowing when the world stands. So let us, the people of God, hold fast to him. Hebrews 10.23 reminds us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our God is faithful. We see it in Jesus And the fact that when we could not get ourselves back to God, when we could not make ourselves right with God, that God himself stepped in to save people that were destined for hell. He saved sinners like you and me through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. God is faithful. And God is so faithful that even when we fail to bow as Christians, there is grace and mercy for us to confess our sins. And he is still still faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that should drive us to want to worship him all the more, believing that our God will never fail. And so let me end this morning with one final quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, There is no saint who can outbelieve God. Because God has never outpromised himself yet. Our God is faithful. Therefore, we bow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, I pray that we would be people who have confidence to bow when the world stands. That we will be people who are marked by integrity, but integrity that is created and, 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 and birthed out of our eyes being fixed on you as we worship you without shame. But believing that it will be difficult, but we are to stand firm. We do not bend to this world. We bow only to you. And God, I pray that 
We will believe that you will deliver us. And even if it's not deliverance in this life, we know through Jesus Christ that we will have deliverance in the life to come and help us to endure and run this race well, believing that you are working for your glory to be known, which is what we want. And you are working even through our own stories. You are working for your appointed end. And God, it's hard because we don't know your end and we can't always see your end. Daniel did not know the end like Daniel, I pray that we would be bold to trust you. Because God, you have never out-promised yourself yet. In Jesus' name, amen.